Welcome to the Exit Plan Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Mike Craddock, the co-founder and CEO of Kairos Group. From an unconventional start as a YouTuber to orchestrating a leading social and gaming agency, Mike shares his insights on navigating the complexities of influencer marketing and two acquisitions, one successful and one not. At the end of today's episode, we have another listener question answered in the M&A Q&A by our resident M&A expert, Nick Berry, partner at Green Square. In the meantime, hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike. I'm Mike Craddock. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Karis Group. So we founded back in 2015. Um, But my background prior to that was I was a YouTuber or a content creator. So figured I was amazing at Call of Duty, decided to drop out of college, put, put videos on the internet. Mum and dad weren't a huge fan, but thankfully it turned out okay. Uh, and yeah, built up a personal audience. So that's kind of how we started the business, really. We we're managing my friends. But yeah, fast forward eight years, we are a social creative agency that is really underpinned by influence marketing. We've got offices in London, Manchester, and New York. Um, somehow, we built a team to 110 people, which we're, we're very proud of. And yeah, it's been a, a journey, a, uh, an, in- an interesting journey, but a journey nevertheless. So that's, yeah, yeah, it brings us to where we are and today. And who did you co-found the business with? Um, yeah, so it was actually a friend of mine from school um, who we didn't speak a huge amount, to be honest, but he was also doing YouTube, went into university, approached me with an idea uh, back in 2015, met in a pub spoke about it a few more times and thought, you know what, there's potentially got some legs on this. And um, yeah, at that time I was just about to accept a job in Germany. So I was just like, you know what, I'll give it a go, nothing to lose. And uh, yeah, he uh, went and studied business. Um, I didn't go to college uni or, any, or anything. So uh, yeah, kind of, I had all the contacts, the relationships and frankly it worked out. Nice. Are you are you fifty fifty then, or or what? What's the sort of ownership um, structure? Technically, but we do have we have provided option options in you know with a variety of senior leadership team members. So it was we haven't taken investments. Um, like you know, well, we took a small angel loan actually, uh, angel loan slash investment last year, which is predominantly owned by us, uh, and then we've just got some option option holders in the business. So a lot of our leadership team and the the layer below that all have performance options to allow them to earn equity in the business i'm a big believer of mm-hmm. getting people skin in the game and you know making sure everyone's a bit rewarded nice and what's the what's the sort of split of team members across london manchester new york yeah we're about 15 in new york um, which we started just over a year ago um and then we've got about 45 each in manchester and london so it's quite split uh, but we only opened in manchester about two and a half years ago it was under under lockdown we opened up here so it's been a bit of a expansion in manchester but i think the city has a lot of potential um and i mm. think we, we can do a lot more here as well so it allows us to tap into different talent different brands so a lot of opportunity up here and what type of what type of conduct is it kind of project work or are you getting retainers and and can you talk a little bit about what clients you work for yeah um it's about seventy percent retains, which I feel like is, is um, maybe a bit rare, actually, of some agency I speak to. So, yeah, we, for example, we run Pepsi Max's social media. So, with you know the main social agency for PepsiCo, so Pepsi Max, Rockstar Energy, 
seven up will run all their social handles over in the uk um you know we've got clients like samsung so samsung displays all of their north american gaming strategy will facilitate so that would be social partnerships um discord management crm influencers and pretty everything um and yeah the majority if i look at our top five clients it'll be samsung pepsico procter and gamble um you know jbl and a few others so they're kind of the clients and the majority of our services is social creative and influencers that's the best bulk and then supplemented by content production design and events okay cool so then um how you know you've made a couple of acquisitions so i'm interested sort of how that idea came about you know yeah. most people just think about growing their agents organic agency organically so how how did the acquisition idea come to fruition? Yeah. yeah we've always been grow 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 until this year uh we've, we've slowed down this year it was always where we feel the industry is going to move to especially within influencer marketing is it was it was just a race it was a race to become bigger and there was a few agencies in the uk that we felt were quite aggressive um goat being one of them influencer were raising capital uh fan bites were growing quite well and we all started roughly around the same time and that was our main competition and it it felt to me like the influencer marketing industry was going to move towards like how PR would, would how PR is and how media where the top five, top 10 agencies receive most of the RFPs. So for us, it was like, we need to grow. We need to build our brands. We need to build the headcount size of the company. So we will be in a position when Coca-Cola review their 5 million pound influencer budget, we received the RFP. And there was a lot of like cowboys, small agencies. So it was grow, grow, grow. Um, a lot of it was organic to start with and we and we did well during that and then across 2020 and 2021 um we really started to grow in covid we felt like we got a bit of a double benefit um because we a were in the social space and a lot of advertising was moving to that we also were very large in the gaming space which that got a lot of attraction so we felt we got a double benefit and to be honest for a year it felt like nothing could stop us um so I think we got a bit excited and then was like, we could do acquisitions and we've done two. One of them's worked and one hasn't. Um, okay. So that's, that's good, good, good for, <laughs> good for people to hear. And yeah, interesting. Yeah. Cool. So which one was first? Yeah. So we purchased a esport organization, um, which was called horizon. And it was actually made by two guys who were working for us at the time. They were account managers and campaign managers and they had this little business on the side and it was growing and it was doing pretty well. And we felt esports was also growing as a market and then folding that into our overall gaming organization would allow us to do social influencers production, but then also have an esports organization. So yeah, it was two people that we already knew. They had this business on the side, started to do well and they were about to leave. Um, to go and pursue that okay. full time, to go and pursue that full time. So we thought, hey, this conversation could be a little different. So, but okay, talk me through how that works because normally when you have employees, they're employed by you, right? So, yeah. so they'd gone off. They they'd done this with your permission, had they set yeah, this business they, up on the side? Yeah. Well, they'd made it actually before they joined us. Um, so they before they joined. Yeah, they okay. founded it in about I'd say 2015, um, and it was 
probably you know not not huge for a few years and then for the last couple of years they started doing really well they were also high flyers in our business um by the way, don't know how they managed to juggle it, but fair enough. It wasn't a conflict. At the, you know, it wasn't a conflict. We were okay them doing that. They would be working on our accounts and then just doing their esports organization on the side. And then they started to land some pretty decent work for it and do a pretty decent sponsorship. So, you know, we gave them permission. We allowed them to do it. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, so was it a limited company? Had they got a separate limited company? Yeah. And and when you say they were sort of doing well, like just what? Describe that a little bit. Like what kind of mm-hmm. what kind of work were they doing? What kind of revenue were they doing? Did they have any employees or or what did that look like? Yeah, it was just it was them two, and then they had around two employees. They had always been profitable, so self funded, uh, and then probably towards the last year. They did around 350k revenue and about 130k EBITDA, um, okay. which was pretty solid, obviously enough to sustain them. And that's including them taking money out of the business as well. So that's when they were about to go, okay, you know what? I'm earning more in this company than I am in your business. Um, we can make this happen. And I'm a big believer of if you find stars, like you try and keep them around and not only for the short term, but also potentially for life. And they mm-hmm. were two young lads who I felt were going to do well, no matter what they were doing in life, I felt they would do quite well. And that felt like we need to change this opportunity to retain them. And actually as a business, we will benefit. So it was a half business, half, we want them as individuals. Okay. So then how did you approach kind of structuring, well, how did you approach the conversation with them to begin with? And then how did you kind of structure the deal to make it? attractive to them and to you yeah we well i took them out for lunch um and asked them really what their long-term plans were and they kind of gave me a breakdown of where they were going to start deploying some capital where they saw the future of esports and, and gaming potentially going they also had a quite a nice area that they were investing in like up-and-coming players academy players academy influencers who like you know going to be future stars uh, and they picked up some good talents and it just aligned with a lot of where we would go in the future because we had a small talent management arm of the business, which we were trying to, which we knew we were about to invest in and start growing. Um, so we started speaking about their long-term plans. We gave them a bit of an overview of our long-term plans. At that point, we were going to do an investment round as well. And we said, you know, we're really going to grow, especially the US we can structure a deal here where you can come part of our organization. We will give you capital to also deploy and grow and grow. We'll provide some shares in the business cash. And, you know, we want to give you the overall exposure to Kairos and, you know, we can provide you with finance. We can provide you with offer ops, it strategic support, creative support. You don't need to hire all of this, you know, so we can just leverage Kairos resource to be able to deliver that. And we'll also give you access to our brand partners. Um, and they were happy with that. Mm-hmm. So then it got into negotiation. Okay. So it's, the offer was some capital to go into their business to help them grow. Or actually, hang on. Did you did you acquire the limited company or did you just sort of fold it into their employment contracts? How, how did yeah, that work? Yeah, we purchased it. Um, a multiple agreement bar. It was, we put them on a free year earn out, um, which finishes okay. ne- next month um okay so, so yeah we put them on a three-year deal uh three-year performance metrics so 
there's a multiple of an EBITDA of that current year. And then we had a three year performance metric. So they would need to hit certain revenue and profitability over the course of the next three years to release their next installments of payments. So there's three installments of payments and then we gave them access to wider benefits under the company. But yeah, we purchased the business. It operates as a standalone entity under the Kairos group. So it's just one of the entities that we have under our umbrella. Uh, and then we gave them access to you know the wider resources. Nice. And what kind of multiples, what, what, what are the multiples for an esports agency? <laughs> well, yeah, depends what year, what year right now, not much. Um, but <laughs> yeah, if you ask in 2022, um, which we purchased before that 2022, people were going for like 20, 25 X revenue multiples. Um, what? But, but That's for, crazy. Yeah. For us, we, we ended up doing it. I think about six X, if my memory is correct, about six X EBITDA multiple. Um, okay. And then, yeah, structure that deal on performance incentives. But, yeah, if you look at the market, there's some valuations, uh, you know, phase listed for 1.2 billion, even though they were losing 20 million a year. And they've now just been acquired uh, for 40 million. So they've gone down, you know, 950 million right. a year. So it's been a roller coaster right. year for that market. Okay. And then, um, and then there was some capital into the business as well as part of the deal. So they, So they personally benefited from selling their shares but then they also got some some money to into their business is that right yeah and i also where they benefited a bit more was they would have access to our clients so there was more incentive for us as a business to push you know them in front of our clients so um they now have a partnership with samsung you know it's a kairos client but actually we've got a program that we leverage 60 of their, you know, small micro creators and we have a find and nurture program for Samsung now. And that's actually provided them direct um, income via the brand. So the agency, the agency benefits, we build a really good proposition for Samsung and the eSport organization benefits because we're leveraging those creators and the money goes to them. So the probably the biggest benefit for, for that acquisition was the access to the clients and the brands that we would have. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. I also have a select group of clients that I'm advising on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Cool. And was it, um, in terms of sort of integration, I mean, they were already working for you. So I guess, how, how did that go? Did, did anything kind of change after, after you bought the business? Like how did, yeah, how did that go down? That's to be honest, the best thing that happened was they'd already worked for the business for three years. We knew them, we knew a culture fit. Uh, we knew how they would integrate. They understand the business as well, more importantly. And it was a pretty seamless, um, it did change because they went from full-time account managers, which they were at the point, uh, into they're not going to do this job anymore. They're going to be running Horizon. So that was just a communication to the entire company that we had purchased the business. And um, those two individuals were just going to focus on Horizon now, which meant we needed to hire two account managers. Um, and then, yeah, they've rolled relatively independently, to be fair. They've been integrated into the business. You know, they'll be in the same offices account managers or you know the rest of the agency but it's been pretty seamless fortunately um so for that very organic company we're happy about it retaining two key individuals and yeah they've transitioned over the course of three years now as well they've taken on more responsibility so we actually ended up 
folding our talent management business in with them now. So we had another okay. another talent management business and we folded them two together this year to create more synergies in the business, which they've taken that responsibility on, so which, you know, added a two million rev two million a year revenue line to their PL. Um but from our side now we've got leadership and management that are really owning that. So we've found some mm -hmm. efficiencies and structural efficiencies by having them in the business. Okay. Um, and how did you uh, fund the deal? Self-funded, that one. Um, okay. So, yeah, we've been profitable for seven years. So it was a half shares, half cash, really, um, structured deal. It's a three-year three -year deal in terms of cash. So the payments were made yearly. And that was just with profits that we'd made in the business. So we were quite, I guess, fortunate that we've been profitable for seven years. Um, so, yeah, it was just all with with profits generated in the business. Okay, cool. Um, all right, now tell me about the um, the next business yeah. that you acquired. Yeah, we did. Uh, so this was when we were growing, growing, growing. Um, and I think we got too ambitious or too aggressive, mm -hmm. you know, which yeah. I think a lot of agencies would probably do as well. Um, we wanted to grow out our talent management roster and really start to enhance that roster and act we did an aqua hire so we mm -hmm. effectively purchased uh, a talent management organization went totally fine um and aqua hired them so it's more of a share swap so it wasn't cash up front but it was a share swap and then they would join our business and we would of course enhance that opportunity um so that was a an aqua hire we call it so and it was a us-based talent management firm um it didn't quite go to plan unfortunately um okay well <laughs> I, I obviously want to dig into this so t tell, tell me about um okay so it was u.s business just tell me a little bit about the the business before you before you bought it um how many people was it um yeah so it's just two people uh the beauty of yeah talent management businesses they don't require a huge amount of headcount to run unless you're a caa or a uta so it's two people they would have around 50 creators under their roster uh, that they would exclusively represent. And typically that type of business, they do brand deals, they do sponsorships. If the creator wants it, you know, a book deal or a Netflix deal. Um, and yeah, for us, we had around 80 creators at that time that we were representing. Our talent management was probably about a team of eight. And the easiest- That was in the UK, yeah. was it? The, yeah, okay. And then these guys were in the US. Yeah, so we wanted to grow yeah. internationally. We built up a- really solid uk roster and the problem with talent management is a lot of the creators are already represented they already have a firm so you can either try and do it organically which is signing a creator a time and maybe you'll get one every two weeks or you can buy someone and because we were just trying to grow we felt okay we can just buy someone or aqua hire someone in the share swap instantly have their 50 talents fantastic we've got all the brands already and we can enhance this and all of a sudden this is a more of a powerful proposition and a more powerful proposition for our agency arm as well and um, so that was that was what we really looked to do we also had onboarded a MA um kind of a recruitment company i guess and they would actually go out to the market on our behalf and vet suppliers and speak to individuals on our behalf just to provide us like hey these are the people here's a shortlist which was taking a lot of manual labor off us as well Okay. Um, so, and just sort of roughly, like if you if you're representing 50 creators, I mean, I guess, you know, 
the model is that you just take a cut of whatever deals that you do. Um, what kind what kind of revenues were they were those two doing on their own before you bought them? Uh, around two and a half million a year, which then you take a roughly fifteen to twenty percent cut of that. I see. So okay. you would then, you know, your fee would be five hundred to six hundred grand per year, um, mm -hmm. which for two people is a, a very healthy business, uh, you know. And yeah, yeah, that's kind of the rough, rough amounts they were doing. Okay, okay. So then, okay, so then it was an acqui hire. So basically, you put a valuation on that business, hired them, and did a share for share. Well, not share for share, but a, a, a sort of well, I guess equity swap in that they got a small percentage of your business. Is that? Yeah, that how it went. yeah, exactly that. So we had actually just done a valuation, um, a full valuation metric in our business because we were assessing options of investment rounds at that point, IPO, like what would all this, you know, what are our options? So we'd receive full valuation ranges um, of what we would most likely receive. And we also had then, okay, what does that multiple of revenue look like or a multiple of EBITDA at that time? Um, so we use very similar uh, valuation metrics to what will they be valued against us, uh, and then we provided a share a share swap or a share we provided shares in Kairos, so we would pay them healthy salaries, uh, a bonus structure depending on if they close the revenue or their overall talents, um, and then shares in Kairos that you know if we were to sell or list, of course they would you know uh, benefit benefit from. Okay. Just before we get into that, just uh, um, that valuation exercise that you did, who was it that you got to do that? And, and kind of what was the, what was the approach they took? And what, what kind of valuation did they come up with? Um, yeah, so this was before everything felt like it changed a little bit. So our business is a little <laughs> bit different. We have an agency arm, a talent management arm, a syndication arm, and we have quite a lot of tech. Um, so at that point, we received valuations from your traditional accountants. We also were considering a listing. So we spoke to some brokers who, who would facilitate that. And they did some early benchmark comparisons, you know, against the likes of S4 Capital, you know, in the gaming space, Team 17, who were all publicly listed. Um, we, and at that point, we would have received a revenue multiple we changed tactic and of course we didn't proceed with that it was just prior to the you know the war um in in, in ukraine mm -hmm. and russia and then all of a sudden the market changed to you know a restricted market and then multiple of ebit but we would receive we would have received you know a it was like 3x revenue multiple at that moment of time which had aligned with our previous strategy of grow 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 um yeah and then very quickly it turned into okay, now people can more care about EBITDA and transition, transition that. So that's kind of where we ended up um, being valued at at that time. What was the revenue at the time? Um, around 20 mil. Okay. That's, that's impressive. That's big. Thank well you. done. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Okay. So with this Acqui hire, um, so you went ahead, you did the equity swap and then then what happened? We weren't ready for it, to be honest. You know, we we felt probably because we did the UK one, it worked. We just rushed it. It was, we didn't do enough. We didn't take it seriously, you know, to be honest. Yeah. Um, this is me being like very self-critical, but we, we rushed the deal. 
you know, we were more interested in getting it to go ahead. So we didn't do any proper like culture fits, um, pros and cons of, you know, each individual. And it was, it was a small enough business to be able to, you know, really net out like strengths, weaknesses, how it fits into the wider organization. The US is very different to the UK, which I don't feel like we really took seriously as well. You know, we had a hundred people in the UK and the way US do business is very different. The way they probably treat staff is very different. The benefits, the expectations. Um, so we didn't take enough time of flying over to the US and sitting down with a week and really, you know, understanding both individual values of what we want to do. Um, operationally, even behind the scenes, we weren't set up for it. So we were not set up, whether that was from a like a, a, a traditional like legal perspective or even like an operational perspective. We just weren't ready for it. So we ended up, you know, doing the deal, um, and it was and it was operating fine. Like the revenues were really growing, but it quite quickly came to a head that like culture wasn't going to work as well. Um, and that's when I think both parties started to agree uh, as well. And it was, you know, separated. So uh, do, already. Okay. So just, um, did they kind of come and work in your New York office or like what was, when you say there was a sort of cultural, cultural issues, like how, how did those express themselves? Um, yeah. So at that point we didn't have a New York office, actually. We only opened in New York last year. This has just been a bit before that. So it was all, it was all virtual okay. or online, predominantly, right. predominantly in COVID time. But just the way we would do work, the way the interactions, you know, US is a lot more direct as well mm-hmm. in terms of how they would probably treat staff, you know, um, manage individuals, how they would integrate. We also were helping out like the back end. So the, the finances, the HR, the ops were handled by the UK business. But that's also a very different ball game if you go to the US. So we didn't have sufficient localized knowledge as well. Um, and okay. we just weren't set up to make it a success, really. And that was a big learning for us, you know, to slow down and not get excited by the shiny new mm. thing and really make sure the logistics are set up. So how did it, how, how did you sort of know that the writing was on the wall? Like, was there a kind of a particular thing that kind of made you realize it wasn't going to work or did it just sort of slowly become apparent? It was, I'd say slowly. I think everyone's always in the honeymoon phase at the start, aren't they? And everyone's excited and revenues are increasing and talent are increasing and the opportunities. And then over time, it just became, you know, teams would clash, individuals would clash a little more. Um, you know, dis- disagreements here and there, arguments about the way it should be run in America versus, you know, how it should be run in the UK, who ends up actually calling the shots of this decision here. You know, you, it's also sometimes difficult if you purchase a business that is founder-led because that, per- you know, for example, if someone purchased our business right now, I've never been told what to do. And all of a sudden you're reporting into someone, it's a very different life. It's a very different experience and it doesn't always work out. So, um, you know, I think most M&As fail, right? That's what the statistics say. So it was just slowly over time, it felt like, okay, bit of a disagreement here is a disagreement of how this is working, different ways of working on this situation. I, yeah, it just became a bit more frustrated, I guess, between both parties.
If you listen to this podcast and think that sometimes you'd like to be able to ask some of the speakers some questions that are specific to your exit, I've put together a little event which will give you the opportunity to do that. So on the 31st of January, I'm hosting the first Exit Plan Live event. Um, I've invited three speakers to join me, Nick Berry, M&A advisor and partner at Green Square, Lisa Pasca, who sold her SEO agency Verb to a network agency group, and Joe Lewin, the CEO of Foundy, an M&A marketplace. We'll be recording a live podcast, followed by a Q&A that won't be recorded, to give you the opportunity to ask the speakers about your plans for an exit. It's at the Riding House Cafe in Fitzrovia, who do an excellent breakfast, and it kicks off at 8am on the 31st of January. Link to buy tickets in the show notes, and hopefully you can join us. So how did it, how did it, how did it all end? What, what happened? Did... <laughs> um, trying to think what I can say. Um... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we parted ways. Um, okay. And then they went back to... And did, and did it would... Okay, and uh, and in terms of the equity, was there? Yeah, all reverted just, back to us. Yeah, yeah, all, all reverted back to us. Them. It was like no problem. Like this, this isn't working. Um, let's just revert backwards. And I think it was probably fortunate that we hadn't paid a upfront cash. Um, you know, you know, for that because that would have been fully written off, of course. And in reality, you know, we did actually end up wiping a lot, of, a, a lot of money off, right? A, the time invested into doing things like that is hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, it does cost a lot of money. You know, just the legal contract alone was 50 grand to do the, to do the aqua hire. It's not even an acquisition. It was still 50 grand from the legal side. So it, when you was went, that because you were using us lawyers. Yeah. 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 To, to it's it's absolutely crazy. It's I've, I've had quotes for stuff like this in the U S and it's just sort of, three to five times as much as you'd pay in the UK just for sort of fairly straightforward document. Yeah. It's nuts. I, yeah. And it's, you know, it gets expensive real quick. So yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, I'm always happy things happened because I think I'm a big believer of like you learn from it. And it's what it, what's something, when something goes wrong, it's allowed us to like just slow down and learn from that and go, okay, what actually happened here? Why were all the reasons for it? It was, operational setup was legal setup and it was also was just trying to do too much too soon and we were getting excited so it's like okay and now our business needs to slow down like we need to go back to the drawing board what do we want to do here and since that it's been a lot of organic growth and we've explored a couple of opportunities but even those opportunities we had explored we were really diligent on the, on the finance DD, you know, fully broken, broke down every client base, every customer base, full pipeline, you know, what are they going to close, the risk scenarios. We did a full day with all of their SLT and our SLT and I'd do two full days of culture sessions, you know, where we all introduced each, each other, what we wanted to do and just took it, even though they didn't actually materialize, we took those opportunities now more seriously than the ones we actually completed. So it's a big learning exercise mm -hmm. as well. Okay. So, uh, sorry, just on the, on that final question on the, on the acquihire in the US, did, was it fair? It sounds like it was fairly sort of mutual at the end. Did it, did you then incur a load of legal costs to, to, to reverse out of it? Or was it kind of fairly straightforward? Um, it was fairly straightforward. Fortunately, it's probably like 10 to 15 grand it ended up being, um, just to okay. sort all the shares out. And okay. they were quite reasonable as well. So that was, that was fortunate and okay. yeah, they're, they're doing well as well. Um, you know, we actually work with them a little bit as well now. So 
so it landed okay. in a good position. Nice. So yeah, uh, are kind of future acquisitions a, a part of your, your 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 strategy now, or are you just going to sort of see what see what comes up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, definitely organic for now, um, especially where the market is. It's 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 time consuming to do them, and it's also expensive, especially if it doesn't go ahead. So, what sometimes I think we we forget as well is how much mental time it takes from a senior leadership team, founders, CEOs, to then spend the time on doing the acquisition. You just take your eye off the business. So all those intangibles of how much money we spend not focusing on the business um, is extortionate. So this year has been a lot of just focusing on the business, stabilize everything, especially with the market, you know, don't really hire, stabilize revenue, stabilize growth, stabilize clients. And that's what we've done. And next year we'll be back to a growth year. If we're looking at acquisitions, it would have to be something like quite substantial um, because for us now, so now we're slightly larger, if we were to purchase a business doing, you know, 400k EBITDA, it's not worth the time to go and do that when actually we should just go focus on winning a couple more clients to increase that EBITDA. Where we would be more interested is an international expansion. So if one of our clients is based in APAC and that's a difficult market to do organically, potentially do you purchase a agency in APAC and then that actually they can take over your new client over there. So it's currently not in a strategy, never say never, um, definitely organic for now. And then we would most likely assess in like 2025. We've got a lot of exciting organic opportunities for now that doesn't feel like we should get distracted. Okay. And in terms of your own exit, I know you, you, you kind of looked into it in the past. Are you, are you just buckling down and focusing on the next few years before considering that or are there, yeah. are you still thinking about selling? We've had, we've had quite a few offers and approaches. Um, some we've taken more seriously than others. And uh, we, you know, it was, it was definitely difficult at one point, which was like a, I think like a 52 million offer or something. Um, but it was like quite a lot of shares. Uh, right. And that was a serious conversation, but we felt the shares in that business would be too risky. Um, and we had a bit of negotiation, but it was just too risky. So we ended up declining it. Again, fortunate we did. They've not done amazing on the stock market. But yeah, for now, it's just that we need to, we've got so, we've got an amazing opportunity at our fingertips. You know, we only feel like we're scratching the surface of our clients. Um, we've been really heavily in gaming and we're now diversifying a bit more away from gaming, which has opened up a lot more, a portfolio of clients, which is really, which is really good. The US, we've only just started this year and it's quickly become 50% of our revenue just this year alone. And so it's for us, it's like that opportunity in America is huge. Um, mm -hmm. We know, or we are, we do think that the big agencies will continue to come knocking. They're on a bit of an acquisition spree with GOATS, you know, August United, obviously, and a few others being purchased recently. We kind of know that Dentsu, WPP, Publicis and Havas are always looking at these new exciting agencies and we think we're one of them. Um, so I'll never say never, and I do think eventually we'll end up doing something like that to a, a bigger agency or a, a bigger network, um, because we know it's going to be very difficult for us to grow and compete with that ourselves. Uh, but yeah, right now it's just 
get the business bigger. We've just got too much opportunity um, at our fingertips. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for um, being so open about everything. Um, and you know, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's good to, it's good to hear the, the ups and downs and the highs and lows and the things that work and things that don't. So yeah, thank you very much. No, no really amazing to say it always goes, always goes right, but it's not the reality of business, is it? And no, I appreciate you uh, having me on. So thank you so much, mate. Welcome to M&A Q&A with Nick Berry, M&A advisor to media and marketing agencies, who is a partner at Green Square. Each week, he answers one listener question. This question is from Ben Collins from True Group Agency. As creative agency slash services based business, where is the long term value that someone actually purchases? Is it simply brand power? Or would there have to be assets like retained contracts, proprietary software, etc, to create real value in brackets, a weighty valuation? Okay, so there's a lot to unpick there and there's no simple answer. Um, Ultimately, you're going to be more attractive to acquirers and you will therefore be able to drive a higher valuation if you've got a successful business with a good track record, um, with a, a good set of capabilities that are in demand and for whatever reason, you, there's no perception that they will cease to be in demand in the near future. Um, and, you know, if you have got some kind of proprietary software or IP and methodology to the way you do things, then that's all going to help drive your value up. But the bottom line is having a profitable business. You know, the, the more profitable you are, the more you can prove that your model works and is successful. Um, then the more you'll be able to demand and achieve a higher valuation. So all of those things that you, you, you unpicked there are all helpful. If you have retained contracts, if you've got long-term clients that you can point to and say, well, you know, we've worked with this client for, for X number of years, um, then that will all help. If you've got a good spread of clients and if they're, you know, blue chip clients or well-known clients, then that will also help. Um, you don't want to have an over-dependency on a single client or one or two clients, you know, if you've got a good spread across across your, your client mix as well. So there's lots and lots of things which all add up to be what we term as value drivers. Um, it, it, your, your team as well, the, the strength of your team, whether you've got your the second tier of management tied in with incentives, etc., they're all things that will help an acquirer see that there's long-term value in the business that you've got and ultimately what you've got to remember is from an acquirer's perspective whatever they're going to pay or whatever they're going to invest in actually getting a deal done which is not insignificant in its own right regardless of the money that that exchanges from the buyer to the seller there's also legal costs etc there's manpower costs and resources within the buyer's business to then integrate what they buy all of that thing is a cost to the buyer they have to see or they have to believe that they will get a return on their investment. That's the crux of the matter. So all of those things that you mentioned um, are, are value drivers and indicate where an acquirer will be able to get their return on investment. Yeah, it's interesting because actually he asks, you know, is it simply brand power? But actually in your answer, the the, the brand, yes, yes, I suppose it's part of the mix, but it comes very, very low down the list of priorities well, well, with a service-based business. The, your brand, the brand of your business as, as the seller, 
only holds power if it, you've got all of those other value drivers ticked and working yeah. well. But the, you might have a really cool name and you might have a really cool logo, but that in itself is worth nothing to somebody else. It's only your clients, your team, your revenue, you know, tenure of clients, all those kind of things that I've just mentioned, which ultimately drive value in your business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think there is a tendency to um, for for founders to just uh, perhaps overestimate the value of the brand that they've created in in, in the marketplace. And um, yeah, no, thanks, thanks for that that perspective. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you would like your question answered in M and A Q and A, or are wondering what's next for you in your business and want to chat about an exit plan drop me an email on barnaby at foxcogroup.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn.